Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done. Now on to the show. And welcome, I'm Nathan Eckersley and on the show this week we are looking at the quality of our MPs and asking if we can really trust our elected representatives. Plus, I'll be speaking to human rights activist and North Korean defector Timothy Cho. It's a packed show and I want to hear from you, so let's go. has been a pretty unpleasant one in our national story. This week, we have seen one MP forced to resign his seat in disgrace, one given his party membership back after harassing a female co-worker, and another handed a suspended sentence for threatening to throw acid in a woman's face. A week is a long time in politics, but every now and again, there are weeks which feel longer than others. In weeks like these, the fact that MPs are still referred to as honourable members in Parliament feels somewhat ironic. I do have some sympathy with Owen Paterson on this issue. He is the MP who was forced to resign his seat this week after a report found that he had broken paid advocacy rules. The standards process which found him guilty was designed during the coalition government and was since reformed with a series of compromises which created a very poor system. He claimed he was unable to state his case before the committee and tell his side of the story, although he was allowed to send lawyers in to do that, but the panel was judge, jury and executioner. What happened since, for those who missed it, is mystifying. With the Prime Minister attempting to scrap Westminster's standard system, so Owen Paterson would not have to resign. Despite how poor the system is, a judgement is a judgement, and that does not mean the government can conveniently rewrite the rules once that judgement has been handed down. Former Conservative Prime Minister Sir John Major has come out against the government on this, going as far as to suggest that Boris Johnson's government is politically corrupt. Cabinet ministers have also come out and said it was wrong to conflate Owen Paterson's conviction with the flaws of the process. This is what Boris Johnson's Education Secretary, Nadim Zahawi, had to say on the matter. Upon reflection, yes, it was a mistake, and I think it was right to come back very quickly to the House and say, look, we need to separate those two things out. We should work on a cross-party basis to create a fairer system. I think that's a good thing, and my appeal to my fellow parliamentarians from all parties is, look, let's come together and create a better system with the right of appeal. And it was right to separate the two things out. That was the mistake, and I think it was right to reflect and return to Parliament and correct that. 
If you haven't been following this story, the news didn't end there. After announcing their intention to scrap, scrap the Westminster Standard System, the government instructed all of their MPs to vote for the rule changes and not to suspend their colleague. The irony of this is that if they had just, allowed, just voted for it and allowed a free vote on this, then Owen Paterson would most likely have just been suspended and subject to a recall petition, the process where voters can call a by-election to elect a new MP if they reach the necessary number of signatures. By all predictions, the recall petition likely would not have reached the necessary numbers for a by-election, and even if a recall petition were successful and the by-election was called, Patterson would have quite comfortably won and the issue would have been put to bed. Instead, a man has lost his good reputation and the Prime Minister has lost a battle he didn't need to start, and that could have serious consequences for Boris Johnson in the long term. There is certainly a question to be raised that if this were a Labour MP facing this suspension, as Owen Paterson was, would the government and Conservative backbenchers have been so unwavering in backing the rule changes? I should have thought that the government would have learnt its lesson after an incident with 2019 intake MP Rob Roberts, who was referred to Parliament's new independent expert panel, which saw him suspended from the House of Commons for six weeks for harassing his female co-worker. Unlike with Patterson, Roberts was investigated by a different standards mechanism which had not been used before. It was only once the suspension was handed down that the government realised an oversight in the system, which meant that Roberts would not face a by-election. The calls for his resignation became a rare point of cross-party agreement, but he had refused to go. On Monday, Roberts regained his Conservative Party membership, but still has to sit as an independent MP much to the anger of many Conservative MPs and members. I am astonished, however, that media outlets haven't given anywhere near as much attention to the appalling saga with Claudia Webb as they have to Owen Paterson. Claudia Webb is another Labour MP committing a serious crime, being put on trial and being found guilty. Yet it was only upon sentencing that she was expelled from the Labour Party. It doesn't inspire much confidence to know that, under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, she was Labour's head of disputes. Here we have a person who, at the time, was a sitting councillor and a member of Labour's National Executive Committee, the most senior body within the party, harassing a female friend of her partner to the point of threatening to throw acid in her face. And yet she still became an MP and even continued the harassment until April last year. Despite her conviction, Claudia Webb refuses to resign, much to the anger of the Labour Party, whose national campaign coordinator, Shabana Mahmood, had this to say. I think that Claudia Webb should consider her position and resign. We've been calling on her to resign as soon as uh, she was convicted of this offence and obviously we've had the sentencing today and she should do the right thing by the people of Leicester East and resign her seat. These are the cases this week, but this Parliament has seen a number of very serious incidents. For, for example, the SNP's Neil Hanvey had his party membership and whip suspended temporarily whilst being investigated for using anti-Semitic language, as was Jeremy Corbyn following the publication of a report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party during his leadership. Corbyn's Labour membership was reinstated, but the whip was not. 
Margaret Ferrier from the SNP now sits in as an independent MP after infamously breaking multiple lockdown rules once she had tested positive for COVID-19. And Conservative MP Imran Ahmed Khan lost the whip after allegations were made about him assaulting a 15-year-old boy. Even in the Conservative candidate selection for the constituency of Old Bexley and Sidcup, which was needed after the well-liked and respected MP James Brokenshire sadly lost his battle with cancer, Conservative campaign headquarters were reportedly inundated with people expressing an interest in standing for the safe seat before Brokenshire's funeral had even taken place. There have been a number of other incidents which have certainly made headlines, but haven't resulted in any further action. Election to the House of Commons, I firmly believe, is one of the greatest honours a person can be given. To have the faith and trust of your local area to act on their behalf in Parliament should be a humbling experience and a privilege. Instead, a number of MPs have abused their positions for personal gain or not given their office the respect it deserves. There is a case to be made, as Father of the House Sir Peter Bottomley is trying at the moment, to raise the amount MPs are paid in order to attract better candidates and eliminate the need for MPs to have second jobs. The question of conduct and sleaze in all parties is one as old as time, but in an era where the internet is forever and scrutiny is front and centre, hopefully the cases of Owen Patterson and Claudia Webb will serve as a lesson for those already in public life and for those looking at joining. I want to hear from you on this, so please do get in touch. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, do you trust our elected politicians? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rates apply at 07807 183 538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk. All of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. Let's hear what you have to say. And our first message today comes from Aidan. Aidan says, does anybody trust politicians? How many jokes are there about how untrustworthy politicians are? I'll admit, I haven't been politically engaged for that long, but every election in memory has had the same slogan of the best choice out of a bad bunch. No wonder voting turnout continues to be so low. Who wants to take precious time out of their lives to vote for people who don't actually represent us and are just going to do whatever they want to anyway? Every MP talks about what they intend to do during the election itself. And then afterwards, you never hear from them again, and it's all a waste of time. Our system needs to be completely rewritten if these are the sorts of MPs we currently have. Well, thank you for that message, Aidan. And engagement in our political system is a really interesting discussion to have because there are so many different aspects to our political system. It starts at central government and the who can makes up the cabinet and who the prime minister of the day is and everything else. And that extends down to parliament, who our MPs are, and even down to local campaigners, local elections, councillors, and of course, advocacy groups as well. But you're right to say that at election time, we, we do get broadly the same 
style of candidates each time, making grand gestures and making big promises. And a lot of the time they don't come to fruition. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about the 2019 intake of MPs. So many of those Conservative MPs in particular as well, they were elected for some of them almost by accident. I mean, they were standing in areas that the party would never have even dreamed of looking at winning. Some of those seats were just simply unattainable. They were unachievable and it would be a once in a blue moon chance of, of winning. But they have, and those Conservative MPs now have a real fight on their hands to retain the trust of the voters, because one of the big things that many talked about at that election was the fact that in those red wall seats, people were lending Boris their vote, lending the Conservatives their vote. And lending is a really, really important word there, because these are people who have voted Labour all their lives, they're parents, grandparents, they voted Labour, and that's why they do too. So for such a, a generational commitment to voting for the Labour Party, to give that vote to Boris Johnson because of pledging to get Brexit done and level up, or whatever that means, and to, again, build back better. Again, those are just slogans, and we do need some more information on that. But the broader point is that... We've elected these MPs to deliver on our behalf, and quite simply, they, they aren't doing that. This government has an 80-seat majority, and what grand piece of legislation has that produced? It, it simply hasn't. So you're absolutely right to point out the fact that many people do feel disillusioned with this system that we have, and feel that their MPs simply aren't representing them. And fundamentally, if you want to truly abolish this quote-unquote sleaze from our, our political system, then you have to rewrite and redraw how candidates are selected. I mean, candidate selection is done in constituency associations, be that for the Conservatives, Labour, Liberal Democrats, whoever. It's incumbent on that constituency association for the party to choose their candidates. And yes, there's a set of guidelines they have to follow. But a lot of the time, especially if it's a snap election like 2017 and 2019 were, then a lot of the time you go with someone you know, someone the, the association chairman knows, for example, and you, know, you get that, for want of a better word, that use of almost cronyism as well. That, you know, it's picking your mates to represent the constituency in parliament if, if that person gets elected. So... Unless the entire selections process in all parties is taken away from local party control, made purely independent and uh, is made much, 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 much stricter, then that's the one of the only ways I can see that you really abolish this uh, aspect of sleaze or uh, impropriety within our uh, political system to really make it as fair and representative as possible. But thank you for that message, Aidan, and you've touched on a really important point there about actually restoring trust and faith in our political figures. Our next message today comes from Nina. Nina says, I saw a clip on TikTok about this this morning. What this clip was saying, and I agree with it entirely, is that MPs shouldn't be able to have multiple jobs or accept money from anyone other than their government salary. Dominic Cummings said it himself in the BBC interview. Boris Johnson acted like his real boss was the Telegraph, not the people who voted for him. 
In the clip I saw this morning, they were talking about Sajid Javid getting hundreds of thousands of pounds from banks, which is a complete conflict of interest. I don't know how to solve this other than to just ban having multiple jobs entirely. But if you're an MP, that needs to, that needs to be your job, and you shouldn't be able to have a side hustle or anything like that. Well, thank you for your message, Nina. And I, I don't use TikTok, so I, I haven't seen the, the clip, but it, it, it's an important point that you've made there about the, the, the double jobbing, as some people call it, that MPs have. I mean, the, the, in the job description of a member of parliament, in some ways, it is a part-time job because if if you are an MP and you are made a government minister, then someone says that is having two jobs, being a minister and being a member of parliament, being a constituency representative. If being a member of parliament was a full-time job in, in its entirety, then you couldn't be a government minister as well. That, that just simply wouldn't be possible with the time demands and expectations of those jobs. So... The system accounts for the fact that a, a large number of MPs will become government ministers, be they at the very lowest rank of uh, parliamentary private secretary, all the way up to foreign secretary, home secretary, chancellor, and even prime minister. You know, so all the all of these jobs in government, they have to have allowances for the fact that the the office holders are still members of parliament, or in some cases they are members of the House of Lords. Now, with the House of Lords, that's that's another interesting question as well, and uh, we've seen reports in the papers today about how uh, some Conservative peers have donated £3 million to get a seat in the Lords, and some have gone on to serve as junior ministers in government, but we can look at that in a, in a little bit. But on this point about Members of Parliament, I actually agree with Sir Peter Bottomley, actually, as I mentioned in my opening remarks earlier. He, he's the, the father of the House. The the longest uh, continuously serving MP. I, th I believe he was elected in 1983 and has served ever since then. And he's arguing that if you want to get better MPs, if you want to get MPs who are more committed and there's the MPs who don't have second jobs, who are entirely committed to serving the constituency, then you need to pay them more on par with a hospital consultant or a GP. Because his argument is that as an MP, you are acting as a, a, a GP uh, looking out for and consulting people who come to see you. I mean, it's, it is called an MP's surgery, just as there's a, a GP's surgery. So I, I have a lot of uh, time for uh, Peter Bottomley's argument here, and I, I think he's making a, a very good point. There's naturally a lot of uh, res uh, resentment or reservation towards this argument by saying that People go into politics simply for the money and the uh, accolade and the what, what you get after leaving public life in, in terms of consultancy jobs, which is what Sajid Javid did after resigning as Chancellor of the Exchequer. He uh, ended up being a consultant for a number of big banks, like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was one of them. But I, I think it, it's a good point that you've made there, that MPs should not have multiple jobs, especially a lobbying job, as Owen Patterson was, because I do think that is an abuse of your position. There are people who are employed by companies to lobby MPs and peers and government ministers, and mixing those two jobs is straying into very dangerous territory, and it, it shouldn't be allowed. But certainly considering paying MPs more would be a good way of perhaps getting around this issue. Well, thank you for that message, Nina.
Our next message comes from Hannah. Hannah says, at this point, Nathan, it's not about trusting our politicians. It's about trusting the system that they operate in. How can a major political party, the Labour Party, not sack an MP who's been found guilty of a serious crime? There are real people, the people that she represents, who are now being represented by someone who threatened to throw acid on someone else's face. This has real-life consequences. There will always be bad eggs in any organisation that has as many members as Parliament does. But how can we expect those bad eggs to be removed if the entire system is broken? I agree with what your earlier message said. If this is how the system operates, then there needs to be it needs to be completely rewritten because it is not fit for use. Well, thank you for that message, Hannah. And I completely agree with you. It is so, so wrong that Claudia Webb is still sitting as a member of parliament for Leicester East and taking a, a public money as a, a salary and acting as an advocate for her constituents when she is a convicted criminal. I mean, it was just before the uh, 2019 general election that there was a, another Labour MP, uh, Fiona Onasanya, who was uh, convicted and given a prison sentence uh, for uh, perverting the course of justice. She was claiming that she was the driver of a car that was involved in a collision. That, and In fact, it was actually a relative of hers who was driving the car, but she took the blame for it, thinking that by being an MP, that automatically gives you a better reputation in the public eye. And that monumentally backfired on her and really truly disgraced the office that she was holding and disgraced the institution of the House of Commons and indeed of Parliament. And of course with, with that uh, conviction and prison sentence because of that she was subjected to a recall petition and a by-election was held because the petition had reached the required amount of signatures to trigger that election. And it to have a member of parliament think that by having those two letters at the end of their names, MP, to think that they can essentially just get away with committing a very serious crime, it's just incredible. And the system does need to be rewritten, I think. And the case of Owen Patterson does highlight this. The fact that particularly with standards as well, the fact that this uh, committee was actually designed to as a compromise just to keep and maintain some harmony within the coalition government which let's not forget was elected over 11 years ago now that's plenty of time to change the system and adapt it so it is more representative of the world we live in and better challenges the actions of members of parliament so I, I do agree with you there. I think the system does need to be rewritten. And the government tried to do this with Owen Paterson, but went about it completely the wrong way. And it really backfired on them. So thank you for that message, Hannah. Our next message comes from Sam. Sam says, as we know, not all MPs are bad people. There are amazing MPs, such as Sir David Amos, who are clearly in it for all the right reasons. These are the MPs and politicians who want to represent people because they want to make their lives better and improve the world around them. And at the end of the day, we live in a political world. So politics is an important way to make change. But then there's everyone else. Do you think Boris got into politics to make a positive difference? No, him and so many others got in it for power. Don't forget, Nathan, just because they wear a tailored suit and don't look like a comic book villain, that doesn't mean they aren't evil. Well, 
thank you for that message, Sam. And I, I, perhaps I wouldn't go as far as to say they are evil, but there are certainly people, as you say, who are in it for entirely the wrong reasons. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would say that they are evil, but you, you do make a good point. And Sir David Amos really was the epitome of uh, what a member of parliament should be. He was totally, unequivocally, unwaveringly devoted to his beloved South End and really championed the causes of South End and the residents of South End and spent his parliamentary career fighting for it to be recognised by giving it city status. Now, very sadly, that was only achieved on the occasion of his horrendous murder. And all the tributes that came out to uh, uh, reflect his life, all of them, all of them had the common theme of how good and decent and kind a, a man he was. And he really set a benchmark and a precedent for how members of parliament should conduct themselves in office. And you're absolutely right to uh, highlight Sir David's work and his advocacy and role as a member of parliament. Because a lot of it, yes, it is about helping your constituents, but it's also being their champion on the national stage. And even in some cases, on the international stage. And, you know, Sir David Amos, being a, a devoted Catholic, even promoted the causes of South End to the Pope as well on the couple of occasions he met him on various parliamentary delegations to the Vatican. You know, so that there's definitely ways to be an MP that really showcase what your constituency is offering. But you're absolutely right to say that there are those who are in it for the wrong reasons. I mean, Boris Johnson famously uh, wanted to be world king when he was a child. And uh, I believe it was at the first party conference where he was uh, a member of parliament after being a journalist for many years. After the, the leader's speech, I believe at the time it was William Hague, Channel 4 News uh, got some B-roll footage of him uh, making a pretend conference speech as leader. And you don't get many first-term MPs uh, getting a news camera to film them uh, making a, a fake speech like you're the Prime Minister addressing the adoring crowd of your party. And in the end, it, it, it took him a fair few years, but he did finally become Prime Minister. And you're right, there are some who are simply in it for power and to gain influence but no, I'm not sure I would agree that uh, they are evil but thank you for that message Sam and a reminder that if you do want to get involved you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Radio. you can vote in our poll the question of the day is do you trust our elected politicians to vote on the poll visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live you can text us at no extra cost only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538 you can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk. All of our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. The question of the day is, do you... Trust our elected politicians. Well, 13% of you say, yes, you do. But 87% of you say, no, you do not. Well, please do vote in the poll if you haven't already. To vote, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. 
and do keep your messages coming through. A reminder that all of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. Now, on this show, I've interviewed a variety of politicians, campaigners and authors, but few have had a, a childhood as harrowing as my guest this week. He has a remarkable story of incredible bravery and unimaginable suffering. He's fled North Korea twice, was brutally abused by the regime, and settled in the UK. And he agreed to sit down and tell me his story. Here is an exclusive 15-minute preview for Wizard Radio Station listeners, and the full interview will be released as a podcast on all podcast platforms on Monday. My guest this week is the Hong Kong pro-democracy activist and Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Nathan Law. Nathan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you. So I'd like to start by asking you about the situation at the moment in Hong Kong. Now, the, the pro-democracy movement was widely covered by news outlets around the world until COVID-19 naturally took centre stage. But ever since, the coverage around the protests and the movement seems to be almost minimal to non-existent. So how has life changed for the people of Hong Kong since the national security law was passed. The national security law was passed last June and it had an unprecedented effect on Hong Kong people's life and the freedoms that we have. Uh, it authorized uh, the government uh, sweeping power to prosecute democratic campaigners by their speech or even by their thoughts. So for now, we're in a very dire situation. Our civil society are cracked, uh, basically annihilated. Most of the political campaigners in Hong Kong are either jailed or on the process of being jailed. Um, people, ordinary people, they lose the freedom of speak up their minds. A lot of them, when they chant a certain slogan, display certain um, uh, slogans, they are arrested under the national security law. So Hong Kong now has become an authoritarian police state where people, they just simply don't have any uh, um, rights or freedom to speak what they want and commit political actions. And with that, one of the most significant moves in this clampdown on Hong Kong is the restriction of freedom of speech and the free press. And the most prominent pro-democracy newspaper, Apple Daily, was forced to close back in June this year, and social media is heavily restricted there. So how difficult is it for you and other campaigners to get your message out there when the media is so strictly censored? It is much more difficult when um, one of the most uh, prominent and pro-democracy uh, media outlet like Apple Daily is closed and the others, they are facing enormous pressure so that they cannot as expressive or as um, direct in channeling um, protesters or people like me, our messages. Um, but luckily, we still got um, social media, people who could still access Twitter, Facebook in Hong Kong, so that we still have our own platform to spread the message. But um, at the end of the day, um, these channels, um, we're not sure whether it will be closed down in the future. Um, and it is, it's, uh, the media and uh, press landscape in Hong Kong is much more closed than before. And what about the situation with more established international news outlets as well? Are there many restrictions on their coverage of the pro-democracy movement or are there more sweeping rules that apply to all press outlets, whether they are local or international? We've seen quite occasionally that uh, journalists on the site of protest are being attacked by police, not welcomed, being scouted at. I think that is basically the situation of Hong Kong if you look into larger uh, larger landscape. 
um, some of the international media, they have already moved out their international or Asian headquarters from Hong Kong to Singapore or to, um, to, to Taiwan, to, to Korea. And we've got um, a lot of uh, local uh, media company uh, that are being bought by Chinese money so that um, their structure and their guidance on uh, doing their journalism has changed um, in order to comply with China in less critical. And you can see um, the, the, the index for Hong Kong's press freedom has been dropping for the past years and to a historical low in these few years. So I, I think um, media as uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been targeting and um, seeing it, uh, seeing free media, free journalism as an enemy of them, um, they are inheriting that trend in Hong Kong and they're trying to basically close down all independent, independent journalism and maybe in their future goal, um, reporting in Hong Kong serves the Chinese Communist Party's political elite. Okay, well, I'd like to move on away from the media and I'll ask about you and your role in, in this movement. So firstly, how did you initially get involved in working with the pro-democracy activists and uh, getting involved in the senior leadership of the movement? So when I was a freshman of the university, I decided to join the uh, university's student union because I believe that students are the spearhead of change and we're half an intellect. So uh, we have that kind of responsibility to serve the society and try to make a positive change. So um, I decided to run for the student body because uh, the student body has a long tradition of being involved in social affairs and activism. So I was involved in activism with um, the role of uh, uh, the representation of our student union. And I was involved in uh, the umbrella movement in 2014 becoming one of the students who took part in the negotiation with the government and then becoming uh, the student leader who people recognize me as um, part, of, part of leadership of that uh, civil disobedi disobedience movement. And, and you mentioned there the umbrella movement back in 2014, and those were really the first major sets of pro-democracy pro protests in, in Hong Kong. Did it surprise you just how much international coverage that those protests and that movement achieved? Well, it was the very first massive civil disobedience movement. Mm -hmm. And before we, we protest, we rally, even though there were civil disobedience movement, but maybe up to 100 people participated in it. And for the other rallies, like we participated in legal authorized rally. But in the umbrella movement, this is the first time the idea of civil disobedience which people will break the law in order to achieve justice uh, was really granted in Hong Kong. So there were hundreds of thousands of people occupying the streets and demanding democracy from the government. That was really the first time that we've seen such a massive scale and the global attention on what's happening in Hong Kong. Of course, we, we've discussed the media here and uh, how in invasive the government's authorities can be in, in the pro-democracy movement. So how difficult was it to rally all those hundreds of thousands of people to your cause and get them to join you in those protests? I think it's important that we capture um, the emotion and the ideas of people. Uh, Hong Kong was handed back from the British government to Chinese government in 1997. And back then, Hong Kong people were promised democracy, autonomy and freedom. And throughout the time, uh, it was 17 years after the handover. In 2014, Hong Kong people still 
cannot vote for their leaders. Um, they are waiting the government to keep their promises, but they refuse to do so. So I think um, it generally arouses a, a large sense of anger and disappointment, or even sense of betrayal from Hong Kong people when they see China. They wanted to close down the 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 political landscape and to tell all the Hong Kong people that you are not going to have a general, uh, gen genuine uh, universal suffrage. I think that was what mobilized people, and we were the ones who step out that make the first step of protest, uh, make the first step of committing ourselves on the verge of uh, civil disobedience, and uh, the way that we behaved uh, really affected people and attracted them to go with us. And as a part of this one country, two systems that Hong Kong operates, you you do have the availability to, to hold elections. And it, with that, you were involved in setting up the Democisto political party. And of course, you, you first stood for election in 2016, along with the other more high profile activists, including Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow. How much opposition did you get from the Chinese Communist Party and senior government officials in, in your activities and campaigning? So in 2016, even though um, I can I could st stand for election, but the uh, the composition of the legislature was undemocratic. We've only got half of the seats through direct election, and the other half, uh, most of them are appointed by the government. So even though for the for for every time in a popular election, the uh, pro democracy camp enjoys majority. But in the council, we are always minority because of that peculiar design. So even though like in 2016, obviously the pro-democracy camp was the majority, I, I was elected with a large margin and the votes combined for the pro-democracy camp was much larger than the uh, pro-Beijing camp. But eventually we are minority in the council. So definitely um, uh, there were a lot of uh, attacks, a lot of... Um, like prosecution from the Chinese Communist Party in order to scare off like pro-democracy candidates like me, they eventually pulled off and we enjoy popular support. And that year you became the youngest elected legislature in Hong Kong's history at, at the age of 23, which is a, an incredible achievement. But were the other uh, pro-Beijing aligned lawmakers in the Legislative Council who were elected alongside you, were they willing to work with you or did they just simply try to make life as difficult as possible for you? Well, I think um, the fact that I was elected uh, with a large margin and I display the capacity and the ability to talk about policy and politics, I think in the chamber, no matter it's from uh, the pro-democracy camp, maybe um, uh, older generations, politicians, or even across aisle, they, they pay certain respect to me and... Um, and, and they act normally. But of course, uh, most of the time, the persecution comes from uh, people uh, like above them. So even though like they, they did not really have much um, agony or, or have much like um, difficulties in working alongside with pro-democracy legislators. But at the end of the day, when the Chinese Communist Party wanted us to be outcast, uh, the political persecution would come. As you say, you, you've been placed in exile and you, you've decided to settle in, in the, the UK. And it appears that Beijing is increasing its grip on Hong Kong and uh, expanding into Taiwan. And in other areas, it seems to be 
increasing that grasp on power and exerting its influence. Is the UK, do you think, doing enough to support the people of Hong Kong? Well, I think UK government has been implementing uh, some of the very good policies to help Hong Kong people, including opening up the BNO passage so that uh, millions of Hong Kong people have the um, a, a pathway to citizenship if they were to apply. Um, they have issued strong statements condemning the government's, uh, government's humorous violation and also uplifting the extradition, extradition treaty with Hong Kong so to protect uh, political exiles that the Chinese government want to hunt in the UK. But of course, we wanted uh, more from the government, including expanding the sanctions to Hong Kong officials and also having a comprehensive strategy to decrease the reliance on China and work with other democratic allies in order to put more pressure to tackle human rights violation. And I think these are important steps to move forward. And what way you're helping to make sure people don't forget what, what's happening, especially around Hong Kong and the Umbrella Movement, is through your new book, Freedom, which will be released in November. Now, whilst the title might be somewhat self-explanatory, could you give the, the listeners an idea of what the book is about? Yeah, this book is about uh, how my story reframes with the fate of the city um, for the past few years. What I've encountered in terms of political persecution has been a reflection of the erosion of freedom in the city. And uh, the process of erosion has an exemplary um, um, effect towards the world uh, because uh, it shows the toolbox an authoritarian regime could use to erode a city's freedom and how quickly it could be done. And also uh, this could remind uh, the international readers, especially those who are living in democratic countries, how fragile freedoms are and how vigilant we have to be in order to protect freedom. So it is not only for Hong Kong people, it's actually for all of you to take a look um, how Hong Kong, Hong Kong's freedom are eroded and then to reflect to your society and ask yourself what we can do to protect it as it is so fragile. Nathan Law, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show. Well, that was an exclusive 15-minute preview of my conversation with human rights activist and North Korean defector Timothy Cho, and many thanks to him for agreeing to share his story with me. And to hear the full interview, download the Nathan Eckersley podcast from Monday on your favourite podcast platform. While we're still discussing MPs' conduct, so please do continue to vote in our poll. A reminder, the question of the day is, do you trust our elected politicians? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. Let's go back to your messages. And our next message comes from Joel. Joel says, I have to disagree with you, Nathan. I don't think a pay rise would make a difference. The basic salary of an MP is around £180,000, I think. I I looked this up and the average salary of a full-time employee in the UK is just over £30,000. And that is up uh, in 2020 compared to 2019. MPs are already earning nearly three times over the average person in the UK. So I don't think increasing it further is going to result in better MPs. If anything, you might just attract even more greedy people. 
MPs need to be people who care about their communities and want to make the country better, regardless of how much they are paid for that job. Well, thank you for that message, Joel. And I, I, I do agree with you to some extent with that, actually. You know, I'm, I'm not su suggesting that simply bumping up the amount MPs are paid will be a, a perfect solution to the problems we face and will be a, a overall one-off solution and everything is fixed. Not at all. All I'm saying is I have a, a lot of sympathy with the arguments Sir Peter Bottomley is making here. And I, th I think it's it's certainly something to consider, but I, I think we do need to look at this at a much more structural level. We, we really need to firstly reform the standards process and make it much, much stricter. And with this standards process as well, we've seen where where it can work, I mean, the, the recall petitions as well, for ex example, they have been used a, f a few times, unfortunately, uh, over the last few years with uh, Fiona Arnesanya, as we uh, said before, and th there could be the potential with um, Claudia Webb. We don't know what's going to happen with that from the Labour Party's perspective, but it's looking like they might be preparing to do that. And it, it has been used before. There was a... Uh, by-election again just before the 2019 general election. I believe it was while Theresa May was still uh, Prime Minister uh, for a Conservative MP in Wales and uh, he he was uh, subject to a recall and uh, a by-election was held which he uh, contested as the Conservative candidate but it was actually the Liberal Democrats who won the seat in Brecon and Radnorshire. So th there are instances where the process works. The system does function well and we, we get rid of the bad eggs as other people have suggested in the in the messages. But overall, it does need to be a really structural change that we make. But I, I do have have sympathy, as I say, with the case to raise the, the amount MPs are paid. And I mean, even cabinet ministers as well, I think there's certainly a case to raise the amounts they're paid. I mean, in, in total, with the MP's salary, which currently stands at £81,932, that plus the ministerial salary of £75,440, the Prime Minister actually earns per year £157,372. Well, when you think of the challenges that the Prime Minister faces, whoever is in office at whatever time, the challenges, the demands of the job. I mean, there are some days where Prime Ministers have worked well over 24 hours continuously, having not had much, if any, sleep at all in certain occasions. And, you know, there is definitely a case, I think, to significantly raise the amount the Prime Minister is paid. But uh, I mean, I'm not saying that because it's Boris Johnson. I, I don't particularly like Boris Johnson. I don't think, particularly think he's doing a good job. But I, I think overall, the office of the prime minister is an incredibly underpaid one. But And similarly with MPs, the amount of abuse they face, the, the fact that they are on the front line constantly through surgeries and meetings and everything like that, I do think that that certainly it should be looked at. Well, thank you for that message, Joel. And our next message comes from Oliver. Oliver says, I think this might be the case of all politicians being painted with the same brush because of one or two bad eggs. There are 650 MPs in Parliament. 
Not all of them can be bad, and we know that they aren't, because even when there have been a lot of bad stories in this parliament, that's only a few people. Instead of scrapping the standards process as Boris tried to do, maybe he should try and actually make it stronger, so a few people can't let everyone else down. Well, thank you for that message, Oliver. And yeah, I, I, I agree with you to some extent there. The, the standards process definitely, definitely needs strengthening. There's no question about that. But I think because of the mechanisms within that, as, as I said before, it was designed during the coalition government with so many compromises that the whole process was actually watered down significantly. That I, Actually, I do think an entirely new process it would be needed, be, especially with the issues that we've seen this week as well. And the fact that you've got a convicted MP who's been handed a suspended sentence by a, a Westminster Magistrates Court automatically is not subjected to a, a recall petition or sub automatically subjected to a, a by-election. I, I think that's wrong and definitely a flaw in the system. But it, it does definitely need looking at and also reforming properly and democratically, not in the way the government tried to do with Owen Paterson. That was absolutely wrong and there will rightly be some very serious questions raised about this issue. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll result. A reminder, the question of the day is, do you trust our elected politicians? Well, 11% of you say yes, you do. But 89% of you say no, you do not. Well, thank you very much to everyone who's listened to this week's episode and my thanks to everyone who has sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again. Thank you to my guest, uh, human rights activist and North Korean defector, Timothy Cho. I'm Nathan Eckersley, and I'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.